So I want to continue in the book of Judges. We're only going to do one chapter. Oh, we have Children's Church for kids ages 4 to 10. It's out in the hallway. You can avail yourself to it if you like, or your children can remain here with you. We also have a nursery out in the hallway um, if you need to avail yourself to that. Um, we are like Bedouins. <laughs> We're like nomads. <laughs> you know, we travel around looking for places to meet. <laughs> and this is our latest tent. So um, you have to make do. Um, but anyways, I, Judges 19, I did consider finishing the book, and then I was like, nah, I'm not going to finish the book. As I got into my sermon, I was like, we'll just cover chapter 19, and we'll finish the last two chapters next time I preach. Um, unless the Lord has a topical sermon for me to do. But um, chapter 19, we're going to cover the whole chapter. Why don't we stand for the reading of God's word? Now remember, this is the second little vignette. These things happened on chapter 17 and 18, and chapters 19 through 21 all happened early on in the history of the Judges. This wasn't rerunning concurrent subsequent to Samson. We already addressed all that. So this is our second vignette. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. And uh, the narrative gets radically wild from there. May God bless the reading of his word. The title of my sermon this morning is Sodomy and Society. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in you and thank you that you have preserved your scriptures down through the years so we can know your ways and your thoughts. We pray that you're glorified here in the preaching of your word. Help me to set forth that which you've given me to declare. Give ears to hear for all those listening, Lord. Lord, and most of all, may your Holy Spirit move within our hearts and minds, setting them aflame and on fire for you and righteousness to do right by you with our lives in the limited time we have here on earth. May you be glorified. We ask in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. You could be seated. <clears throat> so, our book starts out here the same way it ends. Um, verse 19, And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel. And the end of this little vignette, chapter 21, verse 25, look at it there, ends Similarly, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we see here a concubine and a Levite. A Levite who has his concubine. And a concubine in those days was like a second-rate wife. There was a contractual agreement somewhat similar to a husband and wife. There were duties the quote-unquote husband had to her and she had to him, but she was not a quote-unquote wife. That's what a concubine was. And of course, we're living in the midst of a culture 
where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So it continues on in verse 2, and I'm just going to make some random comments here till I get to what I want to talk about. It says, But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. So whether it's referring to her playing the harlot just because she left and went back to her father's house and deserted him, or whether she committed adultery and went to her father's house, we are not sure. It says, Then um, her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. It means to speak to her heart. So he wanted to win her back, get her to come back home. He probably wasn't the best of guy, best of a guy. That's probably part of the reason she already left. And as the narrative goes on, we see, yeah, he probably wasn't the best guy, <laughs> best man around by any means. It says, so she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. The father would be glad. This was probably not good that, you know, everybody was talking. His daughter came back, is living in his house. She's not with her, quote-unquote, husband of sorts. And um, so he's glad because, yeah, maybe we can fix this all up. Now his father-in-law, verse 4, the young woman's father, detained him. And he stayed with them three days, so they ate and drank and lodged there. Then it came to pass on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to his son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go your way. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, So he lodged there again. Then he arose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, Please, refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and both of them ate. And when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing toward evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here, that your heart may be merry. Tomorrow go your way early, so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night. So he rose and departed and came opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. With him were the two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, Come, please, and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside there, here into a city of foreigners talking about the Jebusites, who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. Gibeah was about four miles away. You're talking about another close to two-hour walk. Um, So he said to his servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And they passed by and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go into lodge in Gibeah. And when he went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. Hospitality was big back then. There weren't motels. (laughs) And so people would show kindness to others, strangers in the area, hoping it would be shown to them when they traveled. But no one takes them in. They're in Benjamin, one of the tribes of Israel. It's uh, Gibeah, which is within the territory of the Benjaminites. 
Just then an old man came in from his work, verse 16, in the field at evening, who also was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjamites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city, and the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? So the Levite said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah toward the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem and Judah. Now I am going to the house of the Lord. But there is no one who will take me into his house. Although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself, for your female servant, and for the young man who is with your servant, there is no lack of anything. And the man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So this guy doesn't want him to spend the night in the open square, and he takes care of all their needs, which was the custom to do so. So he brought him into his house, verse 21, and gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. And verse 22 goes on and says, As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came to your house, that we may know him carnally. So, a pack of sodomites shows up at the home of the old guy, and they want to have sex with the Levite. That's what's going on. They want to sodomize him. And here in verse 22, we see similar behavior to what Lot and the angels encountered with the homosexuals in Sodom, correct? They are perverts. Their sexual desires are perverse. And they are driven by their lusts and desires. When their evil is not checked, it runs rampant in society, and the magistrates have a duty to suppress such filthy behavior through law. When it's not, this is where you end up. <laughs> a situation where a pack of sodomites around your house. Hey, bring the guy out. We want to sodomize him. We all know that down in New Orleans, when the sodomites gather there each September, they openly sodomize each other on the streets of New Orleans. If you didn't know that, you just didn't know it, but it's true. If you think homosexuals are the cutesy people that Hollywood makes them out to be, you've obviously never gone to a pride parade. Why they call it a pride parade? Because of the fact that they're sticking it in the face of God. Pride is the root of all sin. Understand that. And so they want to call their festivals pride fests, pride marches, because they're in rebellion against God. Understand homosexual behavior is the ultimate expression of rebellion against God. It's where you take your very created purpose and being and twist it to spit in the face of God. That's what it is. The magistrates have a duty to suppress such filthy behavior through law. We have already seen just in the last 20 years what happens when the filth of sodomy is not criminalized. Its filth grows and further destroys society. Law suppresses evil. Law suppresses evil. I know all your Christian friends will tell you, oh, we should just preach the gospel. We shouldn't care about whether there's good laws or not. Only the gospel changes people, blah, blah, blah. 
Yes, only the gospel does change people. That is absolutely true. But law serves a purpose. It checks the wicked desires of men. It brings order to society. Law suppresses evil. If you doubt me on that, remove all the laws tomorrow and see how lawlessness abounds and flourishes. It would shock you. And understand, we live in the midst of an atheistic statist hell in America now, so there are many laws that need to be removed (laughs) because of the statist hell we live in. But what I find amazing is that the civil authorities in our day abound with law they have no right to make, all the while they don't make law they ought to make. And this is an area. Sodomy should be outlawed. It should be criminalized. It's behavior that needs to be suppressed from the public square. Law suppresses evil. And when it comes to the lawlessness of sodomy, the magistrates have a God-given right and duty to outlaw it in order to suppress it from the public square. I've taught and preached the Word of God at many universities in America, and whenever homosexual acts are brought up by someone and you declare such acts are sinful and should be criminalized, the unbelievers throw out the usual mantra, yeah, you Christians just want to put policemen in people's bedrooms. And this is a total straw man argument, and you should be able to respond to it. And the truth of the matter is, homosexual acts were criminalized in Western civilization for over 1,500 years, and during that time, there were never policemen in people's bedrooms. The purpose of such laws, anti-sodomy laws, was to suppress the activity from the public venue. That's the purpose. And it worked fine for centuries. Like any behavior that is criminalized, people are still going to do it. We have laws against stealing, right? But people still steal. Sodomy was no different. Though it was criminalized, some people still sodomized each other down through the ages. Someone had to be very flagrant in their behavior, however, to be charged with it, as it was kept in the closet in the shadows. The purpose of the laws was to keep it in the closet to keep it out of the public venue, so men rightly abhorred it. The laws of a nation should mirror the law and word of God. The magistrates have a duty to criminalize it in order to suppress it. And we have the duty to demand it of our magistrates while they all hide behind the skirt of the Supreme Court rather than do their duty. Look what we have learned in just 20 years since the Lawrence ruling by the Supreme Court, which everyone's obeyed foolishly. The Lawrence ruling, which decriminalized sodomy. Look what we've learned. We can already see what happens when the magistrates do not suppress such behavior through law. This perversion invades and pervades into every avenue of life and every age of life. Academic, legislative, judicial, commercial, residential, media, both news and entertainment. It is all-consuming. It is oppressive. It demands not toleration, but affirmation. And it uses the force of law to extract such from all in society. That's what we've seen over the last 20 years. 
And it was all aided and abetted by the churchmen who talked about a false love. Not a biblical love where you tell the homosexual, you're living in sin, you need Christ, you need to repent. But almost a love where they make it clear, you're a homosexual, you get to go to heaven anyway. (laughs) You know, it's disturbing. A Christianity that has accommodated itself to the filth of homosex. Did you ever think you would see it? You've seen it. And it's disturbing. Most churchmen absolutely silent. If they're not silent, many of them are aiding and abetting the perversion by twisting scripture, by preaching a false love. And it's all happened in such a short time. It's all pervasive. It's all consuming. So the magistrates must suppress such behavior through law. If they do not, God will through his judgment. That I can assure you. Understand, homosex is thoroughly condemned in Scripture in both Testaments. It is a sin. It is a crime. All the church fathers who addressed it condemned it in the strongest terms, and all of Christianity spoke against and condemned such behavior for nearly 2,000 years. No Christian body ever spoke well of it, all condemned it in the strongest terms. Not a single churchman ever wrote to legitimize it until the 1980s. So understand where you are historically, young people. Though this culture has tried to convince you it is normal behavior, it is not. And men in history stand with Scripture that it is not. When you study the cultures of men. It is wicked, it is filthy. And understand you live in the midst of a Christianity that is a whore led by churchmen who love the praises of men rather than Christ. The vast majority are silent or they're aiding and abetting the sodomite juggernaut. Understand sodomy is the sister of wealth and ease. It is the sign of a society long in rebellion to Christ. Societies in rebellion to the Lord don't start with sodomy. They end with sodomy. And our nation has long been in rebellion to God. And here we are. Sodomy, rampant across our nation, upheld by the force of law, the magistrates perverting their God-given function, calling that which is evil good, while they call that which is good evil. So this pack of sodomites surrounds the house and beats on the door and demands sex with the Levite, but the old man responds like lot of old. Look at verse 23. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly, seeing this man has come into my house. Do not commit this outrage. And then, like Lot of old, the old man offers his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine to the pack of Sadamites. Verse 24. Look, here is my virgin daughter and the man's concubine, Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing. Do not do such a vile thing. 
They obviously didn't have an AR-15. But the problem was worse than that. Here we, see the sad of, here we see the sad effects of living in the midst of sexual immorality and how it affects everyone negatively. Notice this old guy. But to this man, do not do such a vile thing, as though doing it to his virgin daughter and the concubine isn't a vile thing. He had lost natural affection for his daughter, and he had lost what it meant to be a man. He had lost sight of his duty to his daughter as a man. Remember Lot? He too offered his two virgin daughters to a pack of sodomites. This is the sad effect of living in the midst of sexual license. This is the sad effect of tolerating evil in society as all of Christianity has done accommodated itself to the evil over the decades I've been alive, not confronting the tyrants, the evil, the idols of the day, but accommodation is the watchword of the Christian church in America. Not only did Lot offer his two daughters, but when you read the narrative there in Genesis 19, we see that Lot's sons-in-law thought Lot was joking when he told them they had to leave because of God's impending judgment. They thought it was a joke. They didn't leave, and they and their wives, Lot's daughters, died. Remember, Lot lingered, it says in Genesis 19? He lingered. Remember, it says in Genesis 19 that the angels had to take him by the hand, his wife by the hand, and his two virgin daughters by the hand, and basically drag them out of the place? Remember, Lot wanted to go to another city rather than the mountains like the angels told him. Just couldn't give it up. Just couldn't give it up. Remember, his wife looked back and turned into a pillar of salt? Here we see the sad effects of living in the midst of sexual immorality. When you live in the midst of and tolerate this type of sexual lawlessness, it affects everyone it affects you. No one escapes it. What you live around, what you peacefully coexist with, what you accommodate to, what you tolerate in your community and your nation affects you. It desensitizes you to evil. It can compromise you. It can numb you. Oh, you might not do what the sodomites are doing or this filthy adulterer is doing, but it affects you. It desensitizes you to evil, especially with what pulpits most people sit under in America. It can compromise you. It can numb you so you can no longer discern good and evil, so you no longer even know what it means to be a man. To protect your daughters, to protect your wife and your family. And that is what we have in America in our day. The filth is immense, and most men sit silent. And I believe most are silent because they've been compromised by pornography, by what they watch on TV, by what they look at in magazines. So they feel they have no right to say anything because of how filthy they are in their own lives. So everybody's willing to make an excuse for everyone else and how they live their life. Men no longer know how to protect 
You need to speak out against evil and take action against it, men. When you see his law and word being impugned, it should incense you. You should feel compelled as his ambassador to speak out, to act. You cannot just sit in indifference with little spiritual platitudes floating through the air from your churchmen making you feel spiritual while you're indifferent to gross evil in the land. And that's where most of American Christians are, and it's disturbing. Evil blinds us. Every one of us has been affected by living in America in the midst of rampant perversion and immorality, and if we sit by in silence in action, and in action, it will consume us. It will consume our homes, destroy our nation. Societies where everyone does what is right in their own eyes do not survive. They don't survive. Men, how we govern our homes, how we govern our lives, how we act in the midst of this culture, whether we take seriously our duty to be protectors of our homes and families, has an impact on our families and on our nation. Listen, if we're willing to sit by and allow this kind of evil to march across the land and let it happen in our silence and in action, then we're not men. It's disturbing. You go to some of these meetings where, you know, people are still sending their kids off to the government school and they're bothered by this masking stuff and invasion into family um, regarding... You know, your kid's going to wear a mask because we told you he is. The nonsense of contact tracing, the invasion that is into the family, all the quarantining. Finally, there's some action against that of late. But if you go to any of those meetings, overwhelmingly, you know who's there? Women. Where are the men? If we're going to sit by and allow this kind of evil to march across the land and let it happen in our silence and in action, then we're not men. We have given up what is dear to manhood. I know what is taught in the government schools regarding sexual matters. How can any man allow that? How is that possible? Here's how it's possible. Because men aren't men anymore. They've been demanded, so they're able to go along with it and tolerate it, what's being done to their sons and daughters. If you walked up and talked to some kid in what's in these books and what they're taught, you'd be arrested. But it's okay there at the government school because they're the experts. No, they're the perverts. And if you doubt that, all you have to do is stand outside an NEA convention with a sign of a mutilated baby murdered by abortion or a sign that says homosex is sin and watch what they say to you. And they're the ones teaching the children. They're the ones making policy for school boards across the country. When you sit silent in the face of such evil, it will cost your family dearly. Men, do your duty, instruct your children from his word, 
and stand in the gate and confront the evil and idols and tyrants of our day. Stand in the gate. I'm not done beating up on American Christianity because I always feel like I can't do it enough. I wrote here, American Christianity neuters men and tells them to have nothing to do with civil government matters, to be indifferent towards the evil idols and tyrants of the culture, all while the wicked attack and malign when they see Christians who view quote-unquote politics and religion as quote-unquote inextricably linked. They are inextricably linked. Politics and religion are inextricably linked. And as far as God's word speaks to all matters of life, including matters of civil government, God-haters find such a notion horrifying. They can countenance a Christianity that stays in the corner, but Christians who want to see God's law and word applied to all areas of life needs to be attacked and maligned. They fear a Christianity which confronts the evils, idols, and tyrants of the culture, which cannot sit silent when they see his law and word impugned, and which works to make disciples of all nations. Most men have been taught by American Christianity to sit by in their personal piety and say, I don't do that. I don't commit adultery. I don't sodomize other people. I'm not a homosexual. As if that's all that matters is little old you. All the while they do nothing about the evil in the land. And all the while they do nothing about the evil in the land. When our nation was founded, if you read the men back then, they had a priority system, and it was God, country, family. In our priority system in Christianity today, country doesn't even come on the, doesn't even make it. <laughs> it's like, it's God, family, business. Or God, family, church, business. Country doesn't even come. Notice family was here. Notice God is here. But notice also country was here 250 years ago when our country was founded. And you might be wondering, well, why would they, why would they book country before family? Because they knew if the country was sound, their family was safe. That's why they did it that way. Now we live under churchmen who tell us, you're spiritual because you have nothing to do. So babies are getting murdered. Big deal. It's innocent blood. Who cares? They can't pray the sinner's prayer anyway. They all get to go to heaven. Be indifferent. They can come up with a thousand spiritual reasons to be indifferent to everything, even when marriage is attacked by a sodomy. And two women and two men can marry. They can accommodate themselves to that in utter silence. How is that possible? It's because whores fill the pulpits of America. How is it possible that when I go over the 794 thing downtown, all I see is church spires dotting the landscape? How can there be church spires dotting the landscape in this type of evil in the land because the form of Christianity we have is a whore? That's why. God's judgment brings men to their senses. It does. It's a goodness. It's a mercy. Remember Lot... He wanted to go to Zoar. I don't want to go to the mountains. I want to go to Zoar. 
I still got to have like, you know, 7-Eleven down on the corner, quick trip to hit, you know, something like that. I got to have that. But if you follow the narrative there in Genesis 19, what does he end up doing? He leaves Zoar, goes to the mountains, and stays in a cave. He was starting to come to his senses. Starting to. <laughs> what happened there was bad. <laughs> but God's judgment helps bring men to their senses. It is a mercy. And the narrative here continues with the awful ending, with the full consequence of a lawless society where sexual licentiousness abounds. Verse 25 says, But the men would not heed him, so the man talking about the Levite, took his concubine, brought her out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go his way, there was his concubine, fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up and let us be going. I don't think he was talking to her heart anymore. But there was no answer, so the man lifted her onto the donkey, and the man got up and went into his place, went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of the concubine, and divided her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who saw it said, No such deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it confer and speak up consider it confer and speak up and i have a lot to say in our next sermon as this narrative continues and we're going to see what happened here and i want to add one little thing here because i felt compelled to say this and i don't know who it's for or what But I want to close with this short exhortation. And it is this. Always find your confidence in Christ. Always find your confidence in Christ. Understand, young people, even those of you who came to know him later in life, that there will always be Christians who will focus on your negatives and your shortcomings, and make you feel less than them, who will speak ill of you to others, put you down in their eyes. The temptation will be to walk away from Christ and from his people. The accuser of the brethren, Satan, will do all he can to drive you away from Christ or to at least live a shallow Christian life. You must not give in. You must remain true to the Lord. Always find your confidence in Christ. Live in obedience to him. Do not allow others to turn you from him. Do not allow others either to make you conform to their man-made machinations. If you have sinned, confess it to him. He's faithful and just to forgive you and then get up and move on. You must come to the conclusion that what matters is him. Don't allow others to determine who you are with their miserable lives and tongues. Let your life speak to men 
who you are. Just be true to him. It is a deep and hurtful wound when tugs wag and things are said about you that aren't true or are misrepresented. And I've seen people, and I've met them out on the streets, who once walked faithfully with Christ, and because the wound was so deep, now living in drinking, partying, walked away from him. Walked away from it all. When you're abused that way, draw close to him. Allow him to build in you the character he wants to build in you through the wrong you're suffering. That's what you do. And you continue to live faithful to him. Amen? Stick with him. Let's stand up. We'll close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you and praise you for this time that we've had in your word to understand the importance of this matter. We know your law speaks to it. Your scriptures repeatedly speak to it. The filth of sodomy, O God. The destruction it brings to the individual. The destruction it brings to nations. And Lord, we just ask and pray that you would use what was preached here today for good. Lord, we pray you use the little exhortation at the end for whoever that was for, for good in their heart and mind, O Lord. God, I thank you and praise you for your goodness to each of us. I thank you that while we were yet sinners, you loved us. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, you regenerated us. Transformed us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your Son, into the kingdom of light. We ask and pray, O Lord, that we would be your faithful ambassadors in the earth. That we would make your holy law, word, and salvation known to men. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise his name. So this week, we, um, I took my daughter, Priscilla, who's 15 and a half, who can't wait to start driving, up to the DMV to get her temps. And it was interesting because we walk into the DMV over there in West Bend, and there's like eight customers in there, and they all have masks on. And all the workers, of course, have masks on. And the lady working there walks up. They have like a welcoming lady. It's like Walmart now. And she says, oh, can I help you? What are you here for? And I said, "Um, well, she wants to take her test to get her temps. And um, she goes, okay, that's great. Do you have your Social Security and birth certificate? And I said, well, we don't have birth certificates or Social Security numbers. So, doing, 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 doing. And um, so then she... um, says, well, do you want a star on your license? And I said, a star on my license? And she goes, well, yeah, now we have this star so that you can fly with just your driver's license. Otherwise, you got to use a passport. And um, so then she says, but maybe you don't want her certified to, to do that. Or do you people even fly, she says. <laughs> and uh, I said, uh, I said, well, we, we used to fly all the time until all this COVID nonsense started. I said, we haven't flown since then, and, uh, but we will fly again once we've defeated the tyrants. <laughs> and, um, 
Of course, the place is quiet as a mouse. They don't play music. They don't even play elevator music. So you can tell the good Americans all listening in. You know, here's what the lady says to me. She looks at me and she says, I believe it's all nonsense too. And I want to thank you for coming in here without a mask. <laughs> yeah. and, she, and she said it loud enough for everybody to hear. So I said, thank you. <laughs> So then me and Priscilla sat in a prominent spot, and I said, watch, peer pressure, because um, most people are that way. And um, by the time we left, there were 14 people in the place, and only two of them had masks on. Because <laughs> when they came in, they saw us first without ours. So TMJ4 had a huge story about how they're incentivizing new incentives, and even our health department, state health department, is considering new incentives to get people to sign to get the vaccine, even though last week the health department told everybody that five million of Wisconsin citizens have already been vaccinated, which of course I said, if you believe that, um, I have a bridge to sell you over in Brooklyn, um, because that's total idiocy. And so this is how they work. You want to get it because everybody else got it, or you want to get it because you get some free beer, or get to go to Summerfest. Like, the only thing I'd want to go to Summerfest for is to preach the gospel. <laughs> it's like, well, what else would I be doing there? It's like, get in? No, not really. So, this coming Wednesday, there's a hearing regarding all this vaccination stuff. It's at 10 a.m. I won't be able to make this one because I already have a big interview that's already lined up right at that same time. But if you're interested, we will be putting an email out about it, and people will be gathering in Madison in order to um, um, speak on behalf of these bills um, to rein in... uh, the tyranny of the state. Um, and I want to encourage everybody to help Steve Caulfield with his campaign. I'm thinking all this time that the election's in August, and then Steve informed me last week, no, it's actually June 15th, which was about the time I was thinking about starting to tell everybody to start helping Steve. I'm like, what? <laughs> and so, yeah, this is... Very important. Steve, of course, was instrumental just this past week. He's been on the school board in Watertown for eight years. He was the one who brought forth the things to end the masking, where parents can now decide if they want their child to wear a mask or not, rather than the state, and um, ended all the contact tracing, ended all the quarantining. So I thank God for men like this, and we need to support him in his effort to be elected. He's against the slaughter of the preborn. He's been involved in politics for a long time. Here's what I've seen with most Christian men who get elected to office. They have no idea how to govern any differently than their secular colleagues. And that's the failure of the pulpits. Steve isn't like that. He gets elected, there will be a change. There will be a goodness, a salt, and a light poured into uh, the state house over there in Madison. So I want to encourage you to visit with Steve afterwards if you're able, uh, and to help out with anything he has going regarding his campaign, because it's in short order at this point. Uh, Next week I won't be here. I'll be traveling a week from today down to New Orleans. Um, There's a churchman down in Louisiana who's facing 18 years in prison simply for disobeying the state regarding all the nonsense of close down your church, mask up, act like Jojo the Circus Monkey and stand six feet apart. Um, So yeah, while they're arresting pastors up in Canada with their evil and tyranny, here's a pastor looking at 18 years. And we've gotten all kinds of different 
rulings from the courts around the country on this stuff. Um, of course, our state Supreme Court, very different in their response to it. And um, so, but it shows you where things are at. And those are freedoms that men fought, bled, and died for. You don't glibly give them away. So I'm going down there. I was asked to speak at the rally they're having, and I'm going to um, travel all that ways and all the way back because I want to stand with him and um, let the state know you're wrong for what you've done. Amen. So Jason will be preaching next week um, in my stead. Um, so hopefully uh, you'll be here and you'll be blessed by all that goes on. Amen.